Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith Bible Church. We're happy that you're with us. Let's go ahead and pray as we seek the Lord through song. Father, we love you. We thank you for all you've done for us. We thank you for your people. We thank you for your church. We ask that you would be near to us, speak to us, open the eyes of our hearts that we can see Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you'd stand with me as we sing to the Lord. our Father everlasting. Our Father everlasting, the all-creating one, God Almighty. Through your Holy Spirit, conceiving Christ the Son, Jesus our Savior, I believe, I believe in God our Father, I believe in Christ the Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, our God is three in one, I believe in the resurrection, that we will rise again, for I believe in the For I believe in the name 
house this morning so if there are any extra seats in between any of you lovely people you may need to kind of squeeze in get to know your neighbor a little bit we are definitely full thanks oh the love highest heights or darkest deep be there pain or poverty there is nothing I can keep my Redeemer's love from me all alone all alone though I may feel all the Still there's no one that can steal my Redeemer's love from me. Oh, the love, oh, the love of my Redeemer, never failing, come what may, He has purchased my forgiveness and I Washed my sins away. Although burdened by the weight of great trial or tragedy, none of these can separate. Oh, the love.
Can be seated this morning. Thank you, Ryan and Addie and our band. Good job this morning as we worship together through song. Uh, I want to welcome you to Faith Bible Church on this wonderful Sunday morning. My name is Seth Brown, and I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And on behalf of the elders and the staff, we are thankful for that you're here this morning as we worship the Lord. Uh, it's our second week at our new worship center. Anybody bored of it yet? Anybody tired of it yet? No? no? Good? I uh, hope you uh, are, are still using lids on your coffee. That's not going to change anytime soon. And we are watching you, so please do that. Uh, if you're with us for the first time, thank you so much for being here. Uh, we are glad that you're here. Uh, we would encourage you to visit the Welcome Center after the service so that we can get to know you and give you some information about Faith Bible. Uh, it's located out these doors and to your left, and so there'll be some folks there uh, afterwards, again, to meet you and get to know you. And again, if you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being here. We do hope that you are encouraged and blessed by your time. Uh, there are several new items in the bulletin this morning, but I do want to point out a couple things, uh, two specific events uh, to draw your attention to. First, uh, our student ministry is hosting Trunk or Treat for the Children of Faith Bible Church uh, on Sunday afternoon, October 27th from 5 to 7. There's an insert uh, in your bulletin uh, with information about this. Uh, I know that Addie and Justin are still looking for trunks uh, to decorate that night. And uh, we are also asking uh, next week that you start bringing some candy, uh, individually wrapped uh, uh, bags of candy. There's going to be some bins around the church. Uh, we'd love for you to participate in this either that way or, again, um, decorating your trunk on, on the night of a trunk or treat. And, and we would love for your children to be there. Again, that's uh, Sunday afternoon, October 27th uh, from 5 to 7 p.m. Second, our women's ministry is hosting their second installment of Gather Around the Table. Uh, this is going to be on Saturday morning, November the 9th. This is an opportunity for the Women of Faith Bible Church to gather in homes around Oklahoma City and Edmond and share brunch together uh, and get to know each other, build community with one another. And so, ladies, uh, we would love for you to be, uh, to be part of this. We do need homes uh, to host, and so if, if you love doing this, if you love uh, serving people in this way and showing hospitality, uh, ladies, you can, uh, you can contact Keely Bergman, or you can just sign up online, and there's a box there that says that you'd want to, uh, to host that morning. And so we'd love for you to do that. Uh, again, lots of stuff in your bulletin. I would encourage you to take a look at that this morning. Uh, look at all the things that are coming up. And with that, if you'll just stand and hug someone around you and let them know that you're glad they're here. Thank you so much for being here today.
lift our minds to the throne of God where Christ is seated. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives in my name, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No tongue can bid me thence Satan tempts. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul This morning, we thank you for worship. We think that we can use song, we can use melodies to deepen our affections for you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his cross. We thank you that our lives are hidden with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 
Well, I want to thank everybody for being here this morning. I want to thanks, thank Ryan for being here with us these last few weeks. Thank you, Ryan, for being here with us and leading us in worship. Uh, Ryan's going to be getting a few, a few week break. He's going to be back with us in a few weeks. We'll have some, some other folks here uh, leading us in worship. But I just want to thank the rest of the band as well. We appreciate you all so much for the, the hard work you do in, in leading us every week in our worship of the Lord. And uh, while, while we're talking about that, let's uh, keep praying for our search for a new uh, worship pastor here at the church. It's a very uh, important role here at Faith Bible Church, and we know that God has just the right person for us out there, and we just need to keep praying that God will put us and that person uh, together. So keep remembering um, us in, in your prayers for that. Again, welcome to everyone who's here this morning. Thank you for being here. If you're visiting with us, we're, we're very glad you're here. We thank you for your presence and for taking time to come and worship with us here at Faith Bible Church. Now, this is our second Sunday in our new uh, worship center. I'm, I'm certainly not tired of it yet. I don't think I ever will uh, get tired of it. Uh, there's some more progress that's been done this week. I hope you can see. Uh, there'll be more progress in the next few weeks ahead. And again, we're not far away from our full move in. And our plan is on November 24th, the Lord willing, to have a, a, a dedication service here in this place for all of the new facilities as it'll all be finished. Well, in light of our uh, moving into these wonderful new facilities that God has given to us, I want to bring a three-week series over these, these next three Sundays um, centered in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and the first part of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, after we finish that series, uh, the plan is I want to do a three-week series on the topic of work, what the Bible says about work. You know, so much of us, we spend a lot of our time in work, and we need to have a, a real robust theology of what the Bible says uh, about the work and our vocation and the labor we do for the Lord. So I'm really looking forward to that series. We'll uh, begin that at the beginning of November. Really after that, and in our dedication service, we'll be into the holidays um, at that point in time. But our text this morning and next week is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So if you'll turn there with me, take your Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, I've titled this uh, three-part mini-series, Real Church. Uh, we thought it'd be fitting as we expand and we kind of grow and we move into this new phase of our ministry here at Faith Bible. And as we celebrate God's goodness to us, that we maybe just pause for a few weeks and just remind ourselves, kind of re-remind ourselves of our mission here at this church and to reaffirm and to recommit um, ourselves to be the kind of church that God wants us to be. Uh, someone has uh, said that a healthy church is the best soil for, church, for, for Christian growth. And I think that's really true. A, a healthy church is the best soil for Christian growth. So for you and for me, uh, for our families, we want healthy soil here in this church so that we can grow to be everything that God wants us to be. And I think there's no better passage really in the New Testament uh, than these early verses of 1 Thessalonians to help us with that. Let me read uh, this whole chapter. It's just 10 verses. And again, we'll be looking probably at verses 2 through 7 here this morning, but just to, to get this whole chapter in our mind. Paul and Silvanus, that's, that of course is another name for Silas. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. May the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts this morning. 
There's a story about uh, three men that were discussing uh, what church Jesus would go to if he were to come back to earth. There was an Episcopalian man there, and he said, well, I think Jesus would go to the Episcopal church if he came back, because after all, it's uh, so traditional and reverential. Well, there's a Pentecostal man there, and he said, well, I think Jesus would go to the Pentecostal church because it's so exciting and so filled with emotion. Well, there's a Baptist man there, and he says, well, I'm sure that Jesus would attend the Baptist church. And he said, in fact, I'm 100% sure that Jesus would attend the Baptist church if he came back. And the the other two guys said, well, how can you be so sure? And he said, well, why would he change after all these years? I thought that was better than that, but... But that raises a good question, right? I mean, what kind of church would Jesus attend if he were to come back? I mean, what is Jesus looking for in a church? What's the true measure and what are the true marks of a genuine, real, authentic church? What are the distinguishing features of a real church? Again, I don't think there's any better place to look in the New Testament than uh, these early verses of uh, of 1 Thessalonians. Now, Just to get our minds around what's happening here, Paul is writing the letter of 1 Corinthians from the city of Corinth. Uh, Thessalonica is a city up in northern Greece and Macedonia. After being run out of there and going to a few different places, Paul on his second missionary journey ends up settling down in the city of Corinth. And it tells us in Acts 18 that he, he preached the word of God to them there for 18 months. So Paul's down there for a year and a half in Corinth. While he's there, Silas and Timothy, that he'd left behind in various places, they finally make their way down to Corinth, and they inform Paul and update him on how the believers are doing uh, there in the city of Thessalonica. So he's received a glowing report from Silas and Timothy about how the believers in Thessalonica are doing. So he writes this letter among other re- for, uh, for other reasons, uh, but to express his thanks to God for these believers. So down in verse 7, you'll notice he says there about this church, this group of believers in Thessalonica up there in northern Greece. He says, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now that word a model there or an example literally was used of something that was used to like stamp a coin. You marked something by making a blow upon it. And it came to mean a model or a pattern. So this church of Thessalonica, now think about this, probably a church about a year old by this time. So this church has only existed for a year. And he says about this church that they're a model church and that they are model Christians. In other words, this was a real church in the fullest sense of that word. They're the real deal there in Thessalonica. Now, they weren't a perfect church, obviously, and they weren't perfect people, but they were a pattern church for others to follow. Now, what is it that made this church a real church and an ideal church for others to follow? Well, that's what I want to look at these next two weeks. And I've got five points we're going to look at. I'll give you all five of these, and we'll look, Lord willing, at three of them this morning. We're going to see they were an excellent church. Uh, Then we're going to see they were an elect church. And then we're going to see they were an exemplary church. They were an evangelistic church. And they were an expectant church, looking and waiting for uh, the coming of Jesus Christ. So these are some of the key marks of a real church. Now, these are also the marks of a real Christian. Because when we talk about a church being a real church, the church is the people who go here, right? The church isn't the facilities or the buildings we have here. So when we talk about the church, we're really talking about us. We're talking about the people um, who go here. So these are the measures that should mark your life and my life as real, genuine believers in Jesus Christ. And then they should mark our entire church as we come together and gather as God's people. So as we grow together here in this church, and we want to constantly be growing, as we grow here as as pastors and people, this is what we want to increasingly be like. Now, we're going to look at the first three of these points, as I said this morning, and the final two next week. One thing I want to mention here at the outset, though, that's interesting, is you read through the New Testament, and you read about the different churches that Paul and the, the other apostles will write to, we never hear anything about the size of the church. He does never say, man, you guys are an ideal church because you you had 30 people last year and you've grown to 300 this year. It's never any statement really about the size of the churches. And there's no statement about their facilities of the churches. 
No statement about the music. No statement about the different ministry programs that they had in the church or the outreach or all these kinds of things. Because God is most concerned about the internal temperature of a church and the internal temperature of a Christian. What's going on on the inside? And this church here, the Thessalonian church, is a healthy church. I mean, they're a nice, warm 98.6, if you will. They're a healthy, vibrant church. Now, the first mark of a real church and a real Christian I see here is we could just say this was an excellent church. Now, if you begin looking in chapter 1, verse 2, 1-2 through the end of the chapter is one long sentence in Greek. And the subject of the sentence is the word we, and the main verb is give thanks. So this whole chapter here really is one long sentence of Paul giving thanks to God uh, for these believers. Now notice again in verse 2, he says, we give thanks to God. Notice he's not giving them the credit, he's giving the credit to God. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you uh, in our prayers. So God is the one who gets credit for what's happened in this church. But Paul says in verse 2, we give thanks to God, making mention of you in our prayers. So Paul and his ministry team, Silas and and Timothy there with him, uh, they were praying for these believers. They were praying for the Thessalonians. Um, F.B. Meyer, the great Bible teacher, said this one time. He says, the great tragedy of life is not unanswered prayer, but it's unoffered prayer. You think about how many times we don't have what we need from God and we have lack. And it's not because of unanswered prayer. It's simply because of unoffered prayer. God wants us to come to him and bring our heart's desires for ourselves and uh, the needs for others. Uh, We need to pray for each other. And I hope you pray for the people here in this church. Notice what he says in verse 3. Constantly bearing in mind. You could translate this, constantly remembering, constantly calling to mind. Paul was constantly calling to mind and thinking about these believers back up in Thessalonica that he left behind. And you and I need to pray for a better memory. We need to pray that we'll constantly be remembering one another and the needs that we have and that others of our brothers and sisters will be remembering of the needs that we have. You know, there's a couple of reasons why we don't pray for others like we should. Sometimes it's because we don't know about certain needs that people have. And certainly if we don't know about a need, we can't pray for it. By the way, I think that's one of the reasons we need to be in close fellowship with one another so we do know about needs that we can pray for. You can have people pray for you. But I think another reason sometimes we don't pray for the needs of others, if we're honest, is simply because we don't really care that much. Real busy with our own activities and maybe our own comfort and our own ease and all of those things that maybe we just don't really care about one another as much as we should. Look, I hear about all kinds of different prayer requests, and I can't pray regularly for everything, but we can pray for some of the things that we know about. And you and I need to have one another on our minds. We need to be thinking about one another and constantly remembering one another. Uh, the needs that we have, the hurts that we have, the joys that we have. We need to be on one another's hearts and minds. In his uh, book, Truman, uh, that David McCullough wrote, he tells a story about uh, Harry Truman when he was president. And Harry Truman used to love to go on long walks. Now, those were simpler days back then when the president could go out by himself and go on a walk like everybody else. I mean, think about that. This is the late 40s, early 50s. And so one night he decides to go out on a walk and he decides to stroll down to the Memorial Bridge of the Potomac. And while he's there, he gets kind of curious about the mechanism that raises the bridge. So he makes his way across a catwalk and down into the inner workings there of the bridge. And suddenly he comes upon the man who was the tender of the bridge. And he was sitting there eating his supper, wearing overalls, eating his supper out of a tin bucket. And the man showed no surprise, Truman says, when he walked in. I mean, the most powerful man in the world walks in, and this man is eating his his, uh, dinner there out of a tin bucket. And Truman says he just swallowed his food, wiped his mouth, and he smiled and said, you know, Mr. President, I was just thinking about you. (laughs) And it's it's a greeting that President Truman said he never forgot. 
to think that there was a man just in his daily routine of life sitting down there tending the Potomac Bridge that was thinking about him, meant the world to him with all the, the burdens that he had to bear. And to know that someone in the ordinary routine of life is thinking about you or thinking about me should mean a great deal to all of us. I say this this morning. I don't want to say this in any kind of bragging way. I don't mean it that way. But I think about many, many of you every week, dozens of you. And I know probably about as many needs in our church as anyone does. But you're constantly on my mind, and you're constantly on my wife's mind as well. We, we talk about many, many of you every week in a good way. I mean, we're not talking about it in a bad way, but we talk about you and your needs. In fact, this morning, uh, we talked about uh, there's uh, a few couples in our church that have new babies that have just been born that, that are struggling and praying for them and hearing reports about that. Uh, we prayed for uh, and, and talked about a, a man in our church here who has had cancer and it's been gone for a while and it's come back and, and to pray for you. And so you're constantly on our minds and, and the needs and the concerns of this church. And so it would be wonderful sometime if I could see one of you and say, you know what, I was just thinking about you were praying for you. And it'd mean a great deal to me as well if I were to see you and you were to say, you know what, I was just thinking about you this morning or I was just praying for you. That's what we need to have in the fellowship of believers. Um, our elders and our pastors are thinking about you. Every week we have a staff meeting on Thursdays and we go through and, and pray for different needs we know of in the church. Our elders here, we meet every other Sunday afternoon. And one of those meetings, um, once a month, is devoted to spiritual enrichment and prayer. We spend a long time praying for all the needs uh, that we know about uh, here in this church. And there are a lot of them. We all have them. And again, wouldn't it be great to see somebody in the church and have them say, man, I was just thinking about you, praying for you and a need that you have. We need to have one another on our hearts and in our minds, our families, our ministries, um, our health, our work, whatever we're doing, and have a genuine interest in one another. And of course, to do that, we have to know people here. Um, the closer we get, the more we can learn about each other and the more we can be on each other's minds. And that's one of the reasons we have our adult Bible fellowships and we have Bible studies and different venues for you and different uh, setups for you to, to, to uh, gather together in smaller groups to get to know one another and what one another's needs really are. So I pray that we'll be a church that will constantly be bearing one another in mind. Uh, verse 3, Paul goes on here to highlight really what makes this church such an excellent church. He mentions the work of faith, their labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope. Paul is thanking God that he's seen the, the transforming work of God in their lives. And you have this trilogy of virtues, faith and love and hope. And faith is more upward, and love is more outward, and hope is forward. But he's looking at these believers, and he says, you all have a faith that's a working faith. And if we have a real faith, it should be a faith that works. And Paul saw that in the lives of these believers. And if we have a love for one another, our love should be a love that labors, that, that ministers to other people. And if we have a hope, that hope should produce in us steadfastness and stability and endurance. There's a lot in this world to cause us to feel hopeless sometimes and to be despairing. But Paul says you have a, a, the steadfastness of a real hope, a true hope in Jesus Christ. And look, the best is yet to come for those of us who are believers. We have every reason to have a high hope. So we need a faith that's deep. We need a love that's broad. We need a hope that is high. Of all people in the world, we should be hopeful. And we should have a, a gutsy kind of gritty grace in our lives as believers, come what may, because we know what's coming. And these believers had a, a high hope that was animated. It animated them, and it should animate us as well to give us stability and steadfastness. Because we know what God has lined up for us in the future. Someone said it like this, hope is what helps us to live today as if tomorrow were yesterday. And so we want to be an excellent church. We want to have a faith that's deep. We want to have a love that's broad. We want to have a hope that's high. Uh, John Stott, in his commentary on Thessalonians, says this. He says, every Christian is a believer, a lover, and a hoper. And that's what we should all be. We're believers. We should be lovers of one another, and we should be hopers. 
And notice in verse 3, all of this is centered in Jesus Christ. It's in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the presence of our God and Father, living our lives, as it were, in openness in the presence of God. So the first thing we see here, this was just an excellent church in faith and love and hope. Now, the second mark here of a real church in verse 4 is that they were an elect church. And I get that from verse 4. He says, knowing brethren beloved by God, his choice or choosing or election of you. Now, when you talk about the doctrine of election, you're always wading into some deep theological waters. But what I love here is, is that Paul was not reticent or ashamed to talk about this doctrine. I mean, he didn't avoid it. He didn't shy away from it. And we shouldn't either. Now, this is a truth that we want all of us here at this church to understand. Now, there's certainly a, a degree of mystery to the whole idea of God's sovereign choice, uh, the, the, the blending together of, of human responsibility and divine sovereignty. But these people that Paul's writing to here had been believers less than a year. Paul had been there with them only about six or eight weeks. And while Paul was there with them, he taught them about the doctrine of election because he just mentions it here as if it's something they already know about. So he must have taught them about it while he was there. Again, a lot of people today will say, well, you know, never you know, teach the doctrine of election to a new Christian. You'll just get them all confused or whatever. Well, Paul, just there six or eight weeks before he was run out of town, taught them about this. And he writes back to them now to encourage them that they are those who've been chosen by God. And in verse 4, literally, you could read it this way, knowing brethren, beloved by God, the choice of you. It's a definite article there, the choice or the election of you. So God had chosen them or elected them. Now, again, there's a lot of mystery about the doctrine of election, of God's choosing us for salvation, but it's clearly taught in the Bible. I mean, the words used here, he chose us or he elected us. So God chooses people for salvation. The Bible's clear about that. I mean, John 6, Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You can't come if God doesn't draw you. In John 15, 16, Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit. And a great verse on this topic, Ephesians 1, 3, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. So God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. That's what that verse clearly says. In fact, if you go back up to verse 1, Paul writes this letter to the church of the Thessalonians. And really in the word church, you have this whole idea implied because the word church means those who've been called out. So the church is made up of people that God has called out of this world to belong to himself. So our choice of him is rooted in his choice of us. We choose Christ in time because he chose us before time. Salvation originates with God, not with us. And the reason for our salvation finds no reason but God himself. In, first, uh, in Ephesians 1.3, it says, it was all in accordance with his pleasure and his will. So the basis of God's sovereign choosing is not anything in us, but it's solely the good pleasure and the will of God. So we're saved according to God's good pleasure. God doesn't owe us anything. Um, it's not based in any way our salvation on our merit. God is not in debt to one human being. God's not under obligation to save anybody. So he chooses us according to his grace. Go over uh, just a couple pages to 2 Thessalonians. He tells them this same thing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and uh, verse 13. He says, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So obviously, as a believer, there's a point in time when we put faith in the truth and believed in the gospel. But he's saying you did that, you made that choice because of God's choice of you. 
And then verse 14, he says, It was for this he called you through, through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So salvation is God's sovereign work. God begins it, God sustains it, and God finishes it. Philippians 1.6, Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. So it's God's work from beginning to end. Now, when I think about the doctrine of election, you all maybe have heard me say this before, but I like to simplify it by asking a, a very basic question, and that is, who makes the first move? Right? Who makes the first move? If, if I make the first move, then I make this choice on my own. But if God makes the first move, then it's God's choice of me. Now, I believe that God has to make the first move because of what the Bible says is true about us as sinners. The Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sins. We can't respond on our own because spiritually we are dead. We're separated from God. I mean, dead people can't choose God without God coming and breathing life into them and working in their life uh, beforehand. There's an interesting story from uh, Lyndon Johnson's life, President Johnson. Back in the 1948 Texas Senate race, there's a story that's a legendary story, but most people claim it's true. But Lyndon Johnson, back in the early days of his campaigns, gathered together some of the political bosses down in the, the valley counties of Texas, and they went through cemeteries writing down names of people to put on the uh, register to vote. And uh, they would uh, go through and write these names down and put them on the voting rolls. And uh, one of the times they were going through one of these cemeteries, they were going through there, and they went by a grave, and the guy didn't write the name down. And Lyndon Johnson turned to him and says, why didn't you write the name down from that tombstone? I said, well, it's all covered with moss and, and stuff like that. And he said, well, you need to uncover that moss and take all that off of there and write that guy's name down because he has just as much right to vote as anybody else in this cemetery does. <laughs> now, I like that story because dead people can't vote. At least they're not supposed to, right? Uh, that's true in elections, but it's also true in election. It's also true in salvation. We're dead in trespasses and sins and so God has to make the first move. He makes a choice for us that we would never make for ourselves on our own. I was uh, reading a book about a month or so ago by Oz Guinness. Many of you know that name. He's a great thinker. Um, it's a book called The Call, and it's really a book about work. I've, I was kind of reading it for our upcoming series after this one on the topic of work. But this is one of the, the best quotes I've read in a long time, and I've, I've savored every sentence of this, and I think you will too as I read it. He says this, We cannot find God without God. We cannot reach God without God. We cannot satisfy God without God, which is another way of saying that our seeking will always fall short unless God's grace initiates the search, unless God, God's call draws us to Him and completes the search. If the chasm is to be bridged, God must bridge it. If we are to desire the highest good, the highest good must come down and draw us so that it may become a reality we desire. From this perspective, there is no merit in either seeking or finding. All is grace. The secret of seeking is not in our human ascent to God, but in God's descent to us. This is beautiful. Listen to this. We start out searching, but we end up being discovered. We think we are looking for something. We realize we're found by someone. That's beautiful. You and I start out searching. <laughs> we actually end up being discovered. We, we start out looking for something, but we realize we're found by someone. You and I have been freely favored and sovereignly mercied by God. God gives us what we don't deserve. We have no claim on the grace of God. That's why it's so amazing. I mean, you can't demand grace. It's given to those who don't deserve it, but God has given it to us to be enjoyed and to be amazed. That's what God has done for us. Now, you ask the question, Paul says that, I know, brethren, his choice of you. Paul said, I know that God has chosen you to be saved. Now, how did God know they were elect? Charles Spurgeon used to say, you know, people don't walk around with a big E on their forehead. You know, we, how do we know who the elect are? Well, Paul knows they're elect because he sees all the evidences there that they're elect. First of all, they believe the gospel. In verse 6, he says, 
You became imitators of us and the Lord, having literally the word is welcome the word. They welcome the gospel into their lives. That's what the elect do. In verse 9, he says, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. So they had believed the gospel. So the elect are people who believe. They're people who welcome the gospel. In other words, their choice and response to the gospel proved God's choice of them. And the same is true for us. The main evidence that somebody is elect is they believe the gospel. You know, people sometimes sit around and wonder, well, how do I know if I'm elect? Do you believe? If you believe the gospel, then you're elect. Elect people believe and trust in Jesus. But he also noticed, notes how they lived. He noticed how they lived their life. In other words, their life gave evidence that they were believers. Uh, Warren Wiersbe says, uh, those whom God chooses, God changes. And so there's evidence of God's transforming work in their lives. Back up in verse 3, they have a, a faith that works. They have a love that labors. They have a, a hope that gives them steadfastness and endurance. So there's every evidence that these people are truly saved. Now, the doctrine of, or the idea of election is usually best seen in retrospect. It's best seen in hindsight. A lot of you probably heard an illustration before. Donald Gray Barnhouse, I think, came up with this. But Barnhouse liked to try to help people understand election. So he'd say, picture a huge cross with a door in it. And over that door are written the words, whosoever will may come. And those words represent the, the universal free offer of the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every person is invited to come to the cross and receive forgiveness and eternal life. So anyone can go through this door of this cross that says, whosoever will may come. Then Barnhouse would say, once you get through that door, you turn around and look at the top of the door from the, the other side, and it says, chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that's a great picture, I think, because salvation is a door. And on the outside of the door, the free offer is made. Whoever will may come. All who will may come. And then once we become a believer, though, we begin to learn that we're chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Look, a real church is a church made up of elect people. It's a church made up of believers in Jesus Christ, those who've come to Christ for salvation. And that's the, the, the first of our four core values here at Faith Bible Church. The first of our, of our core values, and we put it first because it's most important, to believe the gospel. Because if people here don't believe the gospel, nothing else we do matters. Now, of course, we want unbelievers to come here and meet with us. We want them to come to this place. And all are welcome. We want them to experience what we have. But the church itself, the real church, consists of God's people. And so I'd ask you this morning, have you come to Jesus Christ for salvation? Have you believed the gospel? If you're sitting there wondering, well, how do I know if I'm elect or not? Believe, trust in him. Whosoever will may come and take Jesus Christ to be their Savior from sin. You can do that right now, right where you sit. You can believe in Jesus, call upon him, and he'll save you. I love those words of Jesus where he says, whoever comes to me, and in the Greek it's a double negative, if you come to me, I will never, ever cast you out. That's the promise of Jesus. You can come to him and have eternal life and forgiveness. Well, the third mark here of a real church, and we'll just touch on this, and we'll pick up here kind of next time, but this church was an exemplary church. They were a model. Notice in verse 6, he says, you became imitators of us. That word there is literally the word a mimic, to mimic somebody. And then down in verse 7, he says, you became an example to all the churches. So a real church and real Christians should be worthy of others following us. In other words, we should be an example that others can look to in their marriage, in their family, I mean, their work, whatever it is, and look to us as an example. There's a, a good story about the comedian uh, Sam Levinson. His uh, mother was very overprotective, and he talks about the, when she took him the very first day of first grade, she wouldn't leave until she talked to the teacher first, and of course, it embarrassed him to death. But he said that his mother, among other things, told the teacher that if he was disobedient, that she should punish the boy next to him and not punish him. And, of course, the teacher said, well, why would I punish the boy next to him? And his mother said, well, my little boy learns by example. 
I like that because we all do, right? We all learn from example. That's the way we learn best. And examples are instructive and inspiring to us. It's one of the reasons I love to read Christian biographies. Biographies about famous Christians because when you read their lives, you see an example that you want to follow in some various area of your life. And these believers at Thessalonica, again, a church not more than a year old, he says in verse 7, you become an example to all the believers in Macedonia. That's up where they lived in northern Greece. And Achaia, which was all the area of southern Greece. So these believers had become a shining example to other churches. So the imitators here had become now the imitated. They followed Paul as he followed Christ, and others were now following them. And that should be true of us. We find people that are farther along than us in the Christian life, and we imitate them. And then at some point in time, we who are the imitators should be imitated. It's like a kind of a spiritual chain reaction, if you will, that should constantly be, be taking place. Now, it's a good question to ask yourself this morning, who is there who would be looking to my life as an example? Maybe for my marriage or with my children, my family in some way, or in my vocation, or in my, my spiritual life? Are there people who would imitate me in my life as I imitate others, and ultimately we imitate Jesus Christ? Are you worth following in your life? And to also ask ourselves as a church, are there churches that would look to this church as a model, as a pattern for what a real church should look like? Again, not for our glory, but because we're faithfully following what the New Testament teaches about what a church should be. Back in uh, the early uh, 1950s, 1960s, Billy Graham had a lot of crusades in Los Angeles, very effective and his ministry was just beginning at that time. And uh, back during that time, Time Magazine carried a, a statement by a, a local pastor who was kind of opposed to Billy Graham and what he was doing. And he said, I believe he's putting the church back 50 years, setting the church back 50 years by what he's doing. Well, at the close of the week of, of, of the meetings, one, one of the meetings uh, Billy Graham was having there, they had a breakfast for pastors. And Billy Graham often didn't respond to his critics, but he felt like he couldn't let that comment pass. So someone asked him at the breakfast, what do you think about the pastor, the local pastor here, who said that he believes you've set the church back 50 years? Billy Graham said, well, I'm afraid then that I failed. I'd hope to put the church back 2,000 years. I like that. Look, that doesn't mean we want to be old-fashioned or, or, or have some narrow vision. That's not what we're talking about. Certainly, there are new methods and new technologies we want to adopt all the time to, to reach as many people as we can. But we want in us what was in the early church because that's what God wants in us. We want to be a church that's marked by faith and hope and love. We want to be an excellent church. We want to be a saved church, an elect church. It's made up of people who have given up on themselves and taken Jesus Christ to be their Savior. And we want to be a church that's an exemplary church, that's worthy of being imitated and followed uh, by others. We need to be praying that what God found in this early church at Thessalonica, that other people will find in us. So we can be a real church and be real Christians. We'll pick up there next time and look at these last couple of points here. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your wonderful grace and your mercy in calling us to be uh, your own. Father, we know it has nothing to do with us. It rests completely in your sovereign will and your purpose. And we bow humbly before you. And we thank you, Father, for your work of grace in our lives. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Jesus, I pray they'd do that this morning, that they would hear those words. These words would just echo and reverberate in their heart, that whoever will may come. And that Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I'll never cast him out. Father, our world needs a godly example today. The world, when it's at its worst, needs the church at its best. And I pray at Faith Bible Church, you'll help us to be at our best. You'll help us to be a real church, to be the real deal, that we'll be real Christians, real followers of Jesus Christ. 
And Father, we pray earnestly today that what you found in this early church at Thessalonica, that others will find in us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll stand with me for the benediction as we're dismissed this morning with the Lord's blessing on us. Again, if you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being here. We appreciate your presence. Um, if you've got these doors and around the corner to your left, uh, there's a, a welcome center there. Some folks there that would love to greet you and give you some more information uh, about our church. I'll be down front here in front of the podium here after the service. Our elders that are present in this service will be down front as well. We'd love the opportunity to get acquainted, maybe to pray with you, uh, just get to know you better. So we'll be down here and be available for you after the service. Let's bow our heads now for the benediction as we leave here with the Lord's blessing upon us. This benediction is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who's loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.